So what will the end of your own story look like? What does it look like now? Is your life full of idolatry, putting all kinds of things and people ahead of the Lord? Are you living more for your own desires, fulfilling your own goals and whims rather than looking for God's will in your life? If all of the people and beings who were around you at some point wrote about you, what would they record? Hello and welcome to another message from the Latter Rain Ministries, where we're dedicated to sharing Jesus Christ and His truth with the world. In today's message, we'll be talking about what could be the story of your life. Our life story is being written somewhere, and at some point it will be revealed when we stand before the Lord and give an account for all of our actions. Nothing that we do will go unnoticed, for better or for worse. The question is, what will be written of you individually? And what God mostly cares about is not necessarily how the story began or what could have happened in between, but rather, how did the story end? What was the final outcome? Today's message is inspired in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 21, verses 1 to 18. Lord God, Heavenly Father, hallowed and glorified be your name. Your kingdom come, Lord God. Your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I praise you and I worship you for your goodness, for your love, for your mercy. Heavenly Father, because your mercy is every day. Heavenly Father, I pray, Holy God, that you please forgive my sins. I pray, Heavenly Father, Lord, that you please help us to have open hearts and minds, to be ready to listen, Lord God, to your word, to the ministering of your Holy Spirit. Help us, O Lord, to understand what we need to understand, Lord God. Help us not to be prideful before you, O Lord, but rather to look, to see, to understand what your will is. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Today's key passage reading can be found in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 21, verses 1 to 18. This is the word of the Lord. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places, which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he made his son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put in my name forever. And I will not make a feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers. Only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they paid no attention, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke by his servants the prophet, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, 
He has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears about it, both his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood, till he had filled Jerusalem one end to another, besides his sin by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Usa. Then his son Amon reigned in his place. If someone wrote a synopsis of your life, what would that look like? What would your family and friends write? What would you write? What would God write about you? Whether you believe it or not, there are things being written of you right now. Every moment of your life that passes by is being recorded somewhere. As we look further, you will be surprised who is doing the recording, if you will. But meanwhile, whether you realize it or not, there are individuals looking at what you do. Some may be obvious and others not so much. The Bible describes them as witnesses. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says this, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Who makes up this great cloud of witnesses? These are your friends and family, your co-workers, your boss or supervisor, or if you're still in school, these are your classmates, your teachers, and your professors. These are your neighbors. These are also the people you don't know at all, but they're still around you, just not for extended periods of time. They may not know you well either, but at least for an instant or a few moments, you pass by their lives and they experienced who you are and what you did for that limited period of time. They count as witnesses also. And they are the witnesses that you don't see, but they are there. There is the invisible and or spiritual world of witnesses that exist. Did you know, for instance, that angels and demons could be looking at you right now? And yes, God is watching. And unfortunately, so is Satan. Oh yes, Satan travels and he is always looking. He is not omnipresent like God where God sees everything everywhere because he is everywhere all of the time. But he is around. We see this in the book of Job where it says this, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. 
So you see, Satan can be all over the place. Not only is there such watching going on, but there's a lot of observing. All of the spiritual world knows who you are and what you are doing. You're not passing by this earth going unnoticed, but actually quite the contrary. A lot of people and or beings are watching you, seeing what you do even when you think no one is watching. There are really no secrets in this life. Now, I mentioned before that there is a recording of your actions somewhere. The Bible refers to this as the books. Each of us have our own book being written of everything in our lives. Revelations chapter 20, verse 11 to 13 says this, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each according to his works. So where are these books located and who could be writing yours? One possibility could exist and now, leaning on science a little bit, is that our individual books are being written and maintained by us. One of the things that science teaches us is that your brain stores everything you have ever experienced. You may not remember per se everything as far as being able to recollect your memories, but regardless of your recall capabilities, the brain stores every single piece of information it receives through your senses. And so it is very possible that God will use our own recording device, if you will, to show us everything we have done in life, the good and the not so good. And if that's the case, there's absolutely no way we can say it wasn't me or that's not me on the screen or I didn't do that. We're more than likely going to be judged based on our own memory of ourselves. God knows absolutely everything we do, but the most objective way of judging a person is with their own information they involuntarily keep for themselves. And we can't tamper with the evidence. Your brain does not have the capacity to unseeing things or to hearing things or somehow erasing what you want to erase. Once something is experienced, it's in your brain and you can't do anything about it. And so, you can't blame anyone else for the wrongs you do or make like things didn't happen. Whatever you did is whatever you chose to do. That is one of the problems with psychology, for instance, and how it conflicts with the concepts in the Bible, in particular with the concept of free will. Psychology tends to blame someone else for the wrongs they commit for what they do. There's usually some sort of excuse developed for a wrong behavior. For instance, if a person is abusive, it's because they were raised somehow in an abusive environment or because they were abused by someone else. If a person is violent, same thing. Psychology tends to blame a person's wrong actions and what others did to that person. And that people are a collection of other people's influences and behaviors. The other aspect that psychology attempts to pin our wrongs on is nature. And that we do some of the wrongs we do because there is something in us that leads us to do those things. In other words, psychology either tends to pin all of our actions on nature or nurture or a combination of both, as it is referred to more commonly in the science. 
Now there is some truth to what psychology says, but it discounts again the main concept that the Bible teaches throughout, and that is free will. Free will is what makes judgment possible. So regardless of how a person was raised or what tendencies may be within them, there is always the part of reason in a person, where a person knows full well what they are doing and they decide to do whatever they choose to do because they have ultimately rationalized somehow what they have chosen to do. This is what the Bible teaches. In Jeremiah chapter 31, it says, In those days they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And so you can't blame your parents for the wrong things you do. You do them wrong because you chose to do them wrong. Blaming your parents for the wrong things you've done are no justification before the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 18 also says, The word of the Lord came to me again saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. What is the soul? The soul is a part of the person that ultimately makes life possible within them. The soul is where reason is seated within a person, where they can rationalize all of their actions. This is the breath of life we get from God. It's not necessarily your lungs or your heart that keep you alive. Those are just body parts. God has given life to every living being at the beginning of their existence. And that breath that we receive from the Lord is our soul. And within a person's soul is where a person has the ability to choose, to rationalize, to make judgments. It's really where all action is determined. And of course, all of those actions that are determined, right or wrong, are again recorded by the individual. And because we have willfully or based on our own determination have decided to act accordingly, then we are held responsible for those actions before God. And every wrong action is called sin in the Bible. The devil can tempt you. People can affect you somehow. Your own members, as the Bible refers to them in a few places, are sinful. We were conceived in sin, says the psalmist. But despite all of that, at some point, we chose to do the wrong things we do, even though our conscience may have advised us not to do them. Within that soul that we have, there is a conscience. And the conscience has the ability to discern between right and wrong. That is what makes us feel innately uncomfortable at first when we're doing something wrong. Now, why are there many people that don't feel as wrong what they are doing, like if they're oblivious to the wrongs they do? When a person has decided to go against their conscience time and time again, the Bible explains that they have seared their conscience or that it is somehow cauterized. The connection is burned out or disconnected. But regardless of whether the conscience is working or not anymore, sin is sin and it is done willfully. And God says again that the soul who sins shall die. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what should a person do? Should we just give up and give in to whatever influences are all around us? Most people in society are doing just that nowadays. 
They are condoning and supporting those things that are sin. Society, or rather Satan through society, is telling everyone to just be themselves and that if you have certain tendencies, to just experience them, live them out, and that society will help you live them out. As long as you supposedly don't hurt anyone in what you're doing, you are more than fine. But the greatest harm a person is doing when they sin is to themselves and they don't even realize it. Sin separates us from God. And if a person never turns away from their sin, then they will die in that sin. And that means eternal separation from God and everything good and eternal God has made. Blaming someone or something else won't help. Justifying your sin will not make it right before God because God is the standard and not man. You want to make God laugh? Tell him about how he needs to abide by our human rules and standards. Do you think God can be legislated by man? We have no say or power over God, especially when we stand judgment before him, when we will all be judged by our own actions, the same actions we have kept record of within our own selves. Our only recourse for the forgiveness of our sins can only be found through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We deserve to die eternally for our sins. That is what we earn through our own wrong actions, whether we want to believe they are wrong or not, no matter how much we think that we are right. No one can change God's mind. We can only find eternal life through the avenue God himself has provided and the only way that exists to God the Father is through Jesus Christ. And that road back to God starts with repentance. Ezekiel chapter 14 says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent, turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me. I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from the midst of my people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. What is an idol? Most people think that idolatry has to do with following and or worshiping other gods or deities. If we come back to our key passage, most people will say that what Manasseh did was bad and clearly bad. But the truth is that idols come in all different kinds and sizes and forms. Yes, it was terrible the way Manasseh sinned against the Lord to the point of passing his own children through fire or rather sacrificing his children to Moloch which means he burned his own children to death as a sacrifice to Moloch. Don't be horrified because of this, because our society justifies killing children, and that it is a woman's right to kill them because they happen to be in their body and are unborn yet. Life is life no matter how you look at it, and no matter how a person wants to justify it. So, what are really idols? Anything and everything you put before God, if God does not have first place in your life, then you have an idol or idols. And the only way you can get away from that sin is by making Jesus the effective and literal Lord of your life. There is no other way you can escape that sin. But if your desires are first, your family is first, your career is first, whatever you put ahead of God, that 
is an idol. Some people may say, I believe in God and my faith is on God. And that may be true. But if God is not first place in your life, and if he is not the one that you are taking direction from for every aspect of your life, then there's a problem. Ultimately, you or whatever else takes that place are still on the throne of your life somehow. And that is an idol. And of course, there is no way you can save yourself. We don't have that capability, no matter how good we think we are. We simply just do not possess the mechanics to save ourselves. So again, Jesus is the only path we have to salvation. And that path is started by repentance, by turning away from all sin. If we read a passage that gives us a better understanding of Manasseh's life, we could see the whole picture of what happened. Second Chronicles 33 says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced saying, used witchcraft and sorcery and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made, in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, and this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses." So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed to him, and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. After this, he built a wall outside of the city of David on the west side of Gion, in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and he enclosed Ophel, and he raised it to a very great height, then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, people still sacrifice on high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel. Indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. 
also his prayer and how God received his entreaty and all his sin and trespass and the sites where he built high places and set up wooden images and carved images before he was humbled. Indeed, they are written among the sayings of Hosea. So Manasseh rested with his fathers and they buried him in his own house. Then his son Amon reigned in his place. Although Manasseh did horrible things before God, things that are almost unimaginable, he experienced something life-changing in his life. God allowed for his world to be shaken, to see the end very close, to experience some of the consequences of his own wrongdoings. And that helped him understand the error of his ways. He repented before the Lord and he changed his ways. It says that he was afflicted and that he implored the Lord and humbled himself greatly before God. And he prayed to the Lord in that manner, looking for his help, but with a changed heart. And God heard him. He found grace before the Lord. That's how we find grace before the Lord. Not just by calling out to him, but with the right attitude, acknowledging what we have done wrong and turning away from all of the wrongs we have committed. No one can find grace before the Almighty by justifying and condoning their sins. And we see that Manasseh's repentance was a real one because after he gained his freedom again and was put back into his throne, he righted the wrongs, if you will. And the main wrong he changed and repented from was from idolatry. He gave God the proper seed in his own life and in everything he exercised authority over. He turned to the lordship of God with all of his heart. That's why he was able to finally rest with his fathers at his physical death because there was true repentance and conversion to the Lord. Manasseh was able to change the end of the story of his life from eternal perdition to redemption because he acknowledged God, turned away from his evils and made him the Lord of his life effectively and literally. He did not have a good beginning, but he had a great ending and that is what really matters. So what will the end of your own story look like? What does it look like now? Is your life full of idolatry, putting all kinds of things and people ahead of the Lord? Are you living more for your own desires, fulfilling your own goals and whims rather than looking for God's will in your life? If all of the people and beings who were around you at some point wrote about you, what would they record? What is the spiritual world witnessing? And the most important witness, what is God seeing in your own life? And remember, he sees absolutely everything the actions, but also your thoughts, your feelings, and your intentions. Everything is completely and wide open to the Lord. There are no secrets before the Almighty. He is God. And the Bible teaches this in Jeremiah chapter 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways according to the fruit of his doings. And so, not only God knows, but he will bring everything to the light, even those things that are deep and hidden within our minds, souls, and hearts. All of that is being written within yourself and also clearly seen before the Lord. Having said all of that, what does the story of your life look like now? But always keep in mind 
that if the story does not look great now, it can look fantastic after you truly repent and convert from all of your sins. Your name can be written in another book, in the book of life. If you repent and convert from all of your sins and you turn away from all idolatry by making the Lord Jesus Christ the effective and literal Lord of your life, by making God first in your life, that is the way you can fulfill the first and greatest commandment of all, as it is written, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. It doesn't mean you cannot love anyone else. Actually, you need to love your neighbor as yourself, but that's the second commandment. Loving God means that you are giving him first place and that he is where you get your direction from for everything in your life and of course the reason for your existence. That is why we were created. It's the meaning of life itself. And so, what will be written of your life now and towards the end? Smile. You're on camera. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, blessing and honor and glory be to you. Heavenly Father, help us to understand that we don't live in a bubble. That we don't live isolated from everything else. Lord God, that we are living our lives before you and before others. That everyone sees who we are and what we do. And especially you, God. You know everything within us. You know our hearts. You know our minds. You know the thoughts that we have deep within. Nothing can be hidden from you. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I pray that you help us to be mindful that what we do here and now matters. Lord, I give you thanks because you are gracious and merciful. Because, Lord God, you know that we are imperfect and that's why you sent your son, Jesus Christ. So that we could be forgiven. So that our sins could be forgiven. But help us to understand that we need to repent and turn away from our sins, from our wrongs. We need to change. We need to allow for your Holy Spirit to regenerate us, to make us new, to make us different, Lord God. Heavenly Father, help us to understand that the way to you happens through repentance and conversion, by changing through and through, by letting go of those things that produce death, by not justifying our sins and our ways. Heavenly Father, help us to have truly humble and soft hearts before you. Help us to be sensitive before you, Lord God, so that in the end, when we stand before you, before your throne, that our names may be written in the book of life and that what we have done within our lives may truly bring you honor and glory. I give you thanks and I praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please join us again next time as we look into God's word together. And if you have any questions or just need some prayer, please email us through our website. If you want to listen to other messages, you can go to our website or look for our podcast in the Apple iTunes store under The Latter Rain Ministries to subscribe. The Latter Rain Ministries is a self-supporting Christian ministry dedicated to sharing Jesus Christ and His truth with the world. The Lord is near. May God bless you.